Senator Robert Menendez of New Jersey is under federal criminal investigation by the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, according to two people familiar for what? with the matter. NBC's Tom Winter has the details. Tom, this Pray tell. For the senator is also confirming huh. this. That's correct. Uh, confirming the investigation right now, the spokesperson says we're not sure what the scope of the investigation is, but should uh, somebody approach the senator about it, wanting to ask him uh, any sort of questions uh, that uh, he will offer his assistance. Uh, we don't know the scope of the investigation either, Katie, so we're trying to get a little bit of a better handle on this. It was first reported by the website SEMA for earlier today that said that uh, an individual had received a grand jury subpoena, but we don't know when that subpoena was sent out. We do know that the uh, prosecutorial office that's handling that is the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District yeah. of New York. They're declining to comment on this news today. Uh, Menendez is not a stranger to federal investigations, as you know, Katie. He was indicted back in 2015 uh, along with a, a doctor from South Florida, Solomon Melgen, so uh, part of a bribery and conspiracy case. So that uh, case did go to trial. Melgen was convicted and convicted of a uh, massive, according to the federal authorities, a, a massive Medicare scheme. He was sentenced to 17 years in prison. His sentence was commuted by former President Trump prior to leaving office, obviously. Uh, and according to uh, Trump at the time, as well as the senator, that was something that was pushed for by Senator Menendez. Now, this as what far as Senator, Senator Menendez's Menendez trial back then, uh, it was found to be a mistrial. So he was not convicted of any charges. He was subsequently reelected. Uh, but again, we don't know the scope of this investigation. And it wouldn't be the same uh, indictment investigation because of, I guess, double jeopardy can't be tried. Well, the so Justice Department today. already declined to uh, to retry Menendez on mm -hmm. those specific charges. So that would be a moot point. Uh, every indication, and again, we're still reporting this out, is that this uh, does appear to be a new investigation and a new matter at this point. No indication that the doctor's involved, indicted, but there's a lot here we just don't know yet, Tom Winter, thank you for bringing that to us, and we will obviously come back to you when you get a little bit more information. Sure, appreciate thanks. it. We're still investigating and reporting in. What, he's the only one? <laughs> Bribery and corruption? Fuck, that's like three quarters at least of Congress. Human condition! Pissed. What about people from India, Batman? Did you find them uh, attractive? Um, not really. Why? <laughs> There's uh, seems to be a division there in India between the northern Indians and the southern Indians. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, I found that the dudes are 
they're kind of geeky, but like not and not. Um, you know, some chicks like geeks, geeky dudes. Not me. Are they very uh, um, macho? Yeah, they're real. Um, and they're real possessive and real, like, you Keep know. Your women under their thumb. Exactly. They want you to like be seen and not heard ever again if they're like if they're with you. That I've heard the you know the super pos I, I don't like that kind of guy super possessive and shit. Hmm. Like what are you doing? Where, where did you go? Where, who did you talk to? Now, fuck off! Fuck off! Hmm. Break! Take off to the great wide north. You know. Take off. <clears throat> I don't know if you know, but William Randolph Hearst, <clears throat> William Randolph Hearst abandoned his his family for an actress uh -huh. by the name of uh, Mary, I think it's Marion Davies, <clears throat> and she was uh, sounds familiar. Yeah, she was a she was an actress, but she was kind of like uh, she wasn't that good to be. You could tell that she wasn't that good to be with the major stars. But he forced her in there, you know. And uh -huh. You hardly see any movies from her at all, ever, on TV. For some reason, they just, uh... Huh. What do you know? Water her out. What do you know? Maybe he had a falling with her later in life and just decided ordered her to never be seen. He was one of those <laughs> incredibly powerful oligarchs. The oligarch of Hollywood. Was, yeah, uh, he was so huge. He was the inventor of yellow journalism, the tabloids. And, uh, yeah. Well, he lived in Hollywood. But he was, yeah, he was a Citizen Kane was about him. You're talking about Randall Hearst, right? Uh, yeah, because I think what happened was when... Um, and I don't know this for, for sure, but I think what happened was that when Orson Welles got really famous for uh, the War of the Worlds on the radio, you know, that uh, William Hearst probably uh, invited Orson Welles to his to his home, you know, and showed him all his fabulous, you know, possessions and stuff. His architect was Julia Morgan of the California Arts and Crafts Movement style. The uh, one she who was, made she was the... one of the first. She was the first woman to graduate. And get into and graduate from the Paris Ecole des Beaux Arts. Now, in the movie Citizen Kane, the home of uh, of you know William Randolph Hearst, the you know character. Yeah, the character yeah. was of course Citizen Kane. It was called Shangri La. Mm -hmm. What was it called in real life? Do you remember? Hearst Castle. Hearst Castle. Yeah, oh, yeah. I've actually been there. It's a really cool place to tourist tourist attraction. Wow. It's a, like a museum now. Uh, I love that. She's like one of my favorite architects. Really neat, nice. I got to actually live in one of the, uh, a theater that she designed. The Julia, Julia Morgan Theater Complex in Berkeley. In Berkeley, I got to, I was, uh, got to be a manager of the, of the theater for a while too. That was fun. Oh. My chicky chicky, this is my little penguin. My pinky. 
There's a good boy. He's uh, so handsome. So he had his big chance to make this, this movie. Handsome, boy. He had all the authority in the world to make the movie and he made it. And when he made it and William Randolph first saw it, it was a big insult. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he didn't enjoy that. But he was just very uh, kind of fucking paranoid dude himself, you know. So he banned, he banned Orson Welles from America. They couldn't make any more movies in Hollywood. No shit. He wow. had to go to Europe to make movies. Huh. Come on, baby. Oh, do you want to? Do you want to go? And with a lady friend, no lady friend tonight, huh? You want to go hang out with a lady friend? And if if you if you if you really liked. Citizen Kane, he, he outdid himself. He went even beyond the madness, just kept going beyond madness, was the lady from Shanghai. Yeah. <laughs> That's even better than Citizen Kane. Yeah. It's the one with all the mirrors in the end. And the attorney uh, was um, walked, um, he was... Uh, <clears throat> his, uh, the, uh, uh, there's a guy that plays an attorney and he's uh, physically challenged and he, work, he walks a certain way he uses two canes and he really exploited the way he walks And some of the characters that played in Citizen Kane also play in The Lady from Shanghai. I don't know. Yes, the uh, greatest American director and <clears throat> movie, <clears throat> in my opinion, was Orson Welles. <clears throat> American. But uh, European, it's, it was Sergio Leone, no doubt about it. He made westerns. Sergio Leone. Federico Fellini was a great director as well. Huh. 
Yes, that certainly is a nice little bed for shatter. <clears throat> nice what? Makes a nice little bed for shatter. Bed for shatter? Yeah, you're... Oh, right. Right. Super duper. Super duper pooper scooper. Sugar-free? Uh, no, I don't think so, but that's okay. It's the only cinnamon they have. Ooh, <laughs> Legal AF. It's one of my favorite shows. Trump gets served. Donald Trump Look is officially served by face. the January 6th <laughs> committee <laughs> with the subpoena <laughs> for his documents and testimony. His lawyer, Alina Haba, says he will appear or he should appear. But the question is, will he? I don't think so. MAGA extremist Kelly Ward, who is chair of the Arizona Republican Party, filed an emergency yes. application with the Supreme Court to, to stay and block turning over her T-Mobile phone really records to the, the January 6th committee after her appeal to the Ninth Circuit was denied. Justice Elena Kagan, an uh -huh. Obama appointee, though just granted a temporary stay, this just happened, uh, for her to turn over records, blocking the enforcement of the subpoena, that is, until the January 6th committee responds. A little surprising, but I'll explain why I think this was done. But it's only temporary. The January 6th committee is going to respond, and I think ultimately Kelly Ward's attempt to block it is going to be denied. Mark Meadows, former chief of staff to Donald Trump, was ordered to testify uh -huh. before the Fulton County Special Grand Jury. Boy, nice. do these people just not want to talk about what happened on January 6th. And he was ordered to appear in Fulton County by Why his local court in South Carolina. What's up, Pickens County? And the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, which granted that temporary injunction last week in that lawsuit filed by Nebraska, and the other GOP-led states, which has temporarily blocked the Biden administration from discharging the student debt under the cancellation program. Well, it's now received all briefs, received the briefing from the Department of Justice and from the Republican states, and a big ruling which will impact the future and fate of the student debt cancellation program could drop at any moment now. I am Ben Micellis, and this is Legal AF. I'm doing it solo today. My co-hosts, Michael Popak and Karen Friedman Agnifilo, are both out there being real lawyers. They're preparing for trials, and they've got depositions that they're working on. Um, so I'm here with you solo, and in honor of doing this solo with you all, I'm going to take some questions today from you at the end of this podcast, at the end of the show. We will do a Q&A session where 
I will try to answer your legal questions. I will try not to be long-winded, as my younger brother Jordy said today. If that's how you're going to answer each and every question, Ben. We were doing a Q&A on our Patreon uh, account. If you're going to answer every question that long, we are never going to finish this. We've got 300 Q&A questions that we got around that on our Patreon account. And while I mention it, you should check out our Patreon account, patreon.com slash Midas Touch support independent media like this. But it is an honor and privilege to do this show solo with you, although I know you love Popak and Karen Agnifilo. So let's get right into the first topic, which is Donald Trump has been officially served with that January 6th committee subpoena. Uh, it calls for the documents to be turned over on November 4th. It calls for his personal appearance for a deposition testimony. We've got it pulled up right on the screen right now for our YouTube viewers, the actual subpoena. Uh, calls for his in-person deposition testimony, November uh, 14th. And his lawyer, Alina Haba, went on one of these right-wing networks the other night. And she was asked, well, what should he do? Will he testify? And Alina Haba says, well, she recommends that he does testify. I think we have the footage, so let's play that clip. He's got a couple options here. He can ignore the subpoena and maybe run into a ban in world, or he can go and plead the fifth. Or he can go and, and testify. Any idea what you think he's going to do? And what would you recommend? I would recommend that he cooperate because when you have nothing to hide, that's what I always recommend. The same reason that he always uh, comes out and, and speaks on any of my cases. He um, has no issue being deposed, even though the left-wing media would like to pretend that he does. He has no issue being subpoenaed and answering questions about what happened that day. And, and he shouldn't. Um, what he did was very public. And it, it was really nothing um, other than to say to uh, go out peacefully, as we know. Um, what I so who picked it up there? Who picked up what was really going on there? And I know some of you probably the light bulb 100 Q&A questions that we got around that on our Patreon account. And while I mention it, you should check out our Patreon account, patreon.com slash Midas Touch support independent media like this, but it is an honor and privilege to do this show. So with you, although I know you love Popak and Karen Agnifilo. So let's get right into the first topic, which is Donald Trump has been officially served with that January 6th committee subpoena. Uh, it calls for the documents to be turned over on November 4th. It calls for his personal appearance for a deposition testimony. We've got it pulled up right on the screen right now for our YouTube viewers, the actual subpoena. Uh, calls for his in-person deposition testimony, November uh, 14th. And his lawyer, Alina Haba, went on one of these right-wing networks the other night. And she was asked, well, what should he do? Will he testify? And Alina Haba says, well, she recommends that he does testify. I think we have the footage, so let's play that clip. He's got a couple options here. He can ignore the subpoena and maybe run into a ban in world, or he can go and plead the fifth. <laughs> Or he can go and testify any idea what you think he's going to do and what would you recommend? 
<laughs> I would recommend that he cooperate because when you have nothing to hide, that's what I always recommend. The same reason that he always uh, got a lot to hide and, and speaks on any of my cases. He um, has no issue being deposed, even though the left-wing media would like to pretend that he does. He has no issue being subpoenaed and answering questions about what happened that day, and and he shouldn't. Um, what he did was very public, and it, it was really nothing um, other than to say to uh, go out peacefully, as we know. Um, what I <laughs> so who picked it up there? Who picked up what was really going on there? And I know some of you probably the light bulbs going off, but let me show you what's going on there. First off, Alina Habba's wrong about literally everything. Like she's literally the worst lawyer ever. I mean, I mean, like, like literally the worst lawyer. Like she's she's worth it worse than that Jenna Ellis who got farted on by Rudy Giuliani. Like, like by far. Um, that's <laughs> how bad on. she is. But did you notice what she said? So she is not the lawyer on this case. It's actually another lawyer, a law firm out of California that's representing Donald Trump in connection with the subpoena. So she said, in my cases, when you've got nothing to hide, he testifies in those cases. Because if you've got nothing to hide, but it was about my cases. So one of the things that I think is going on there, and it was subtle and it happened just for a second, but she's not the lawyer on that case. And Trump's actually hired a, a fairly more serious law firm out in uh, California, a firm that I, I know the work that um, they do, clearly showing that he's worried about this subpoena. And that law firm has already been very critical of the January 6th committee and critical of the underlying subpoena. But for Alina Haba, she feels like she should be the lawyer on that case. But, you know, the one thing that it's hard for me to even actually articulate this, but I agree with Alina Haba. If you got nothing to hide on January 6th, what are you doing? Just go and testify. I mean, that's the thing. <laughs> as we talk about some of these other uh, cases yeah, today, like when we talk about Kelly Ward, <laughs> the chair of the Arizona Republican Party, you talk about oh Mark God, Meadows, yeah. the former chief of staff. You talk about <sighs> Lindsey Graham, a senator from South Carolina. These individuals who want to talk a big game at the rallies and social media and Fox when they're confronted in a court of law with answering basic questions truthfully, which the answers in normal course should be very basic. Why in the world would a South Carolina senator have anything to do with Georgia state proceedings? Because he's an utter criminal because he's interfering with the election, because he shouldn't be there. That's why he is running away. And how cowardly can you be? And then you got Kelly Ward, the chair of the Arizona Republican Party, interfering with the results there. Mark Meadows was basically like the central hub for like all the insurrectionists who were sending him messages and was basically the, the fall guy. But you have these people who should be just, the, the answer should be, what'd you do there? Nothing, I did nothing. January 6th, they had the certification, I didn't do anything. But yet, they inextricably intertwined themselves in this insurrection conduct. And now they are, you know, everything Trump touches dies. And they are, you know, all, you know, in the line of fire right now. But we at Midas Touch, we did a video um, because we agree with Alina Hoppe there. He should testify, unless, of course, Donald Trump is scared. I mean, is he scared? Is, 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 he, is, is he a scaredy cat? Anyway, let's play yeah, the video that we just produced at 
Midas Touch, play this new video that we do called Trump is Scared. What's the matter, Donald? The January 6th committee subpoenaed you and you're not going to show? You said you're such a strong man. You aren't a coward, are you? You aren't guilty, are you? Are you that afraid of Liz Cheney? They say you threw hamburgers at the wall. Well, your supporters know you would never waste a good hamburger. Oh, please. Won't you come testify, Donald? <laughs> You're scared. My <laughs> touch is responsible for the content of this advertising. Nice. <laughs> why don't you own apartment buildings? Seriously, why don't you own these big apartment buildings? And I get it. You might be thinking right now, well, Tyler, my word, it's because I don't have millions. That was a video produced by our uh, political action committee arm. It's so good and so true. And, you know, ultimately, that's what it, uh, it's like, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, whatever. I mean, these insurrectionist criminals are also just cowards. You know, when I think back to when Hillary Clinton was, caused, was called before that ridiculous Benghazi committee, and she sat there for 12 hours, didn't plead the fifth once, answered each and every one of those questions. That right there is courage, but you're the Secretary of State too. Like, we expect them to be courageous. You know, oh, she was, responsive. she rose to the moment, but that was also the At role. Least. These people, the Trumps and the Meadows and the, and the Kelly Wards and the and the all these people, they're cowards who should never have been in these positions in the first place. They are weak. Yeah. They are well, cowards and they are traitors. And speaking of weak cowards and, and traitor, MAGA extremist Kelly Ward, the chair of the Arizona Republican Party, filed an emergency application <laughs> with the Supreme Court to block turning over her phone records. She desperately. <laughs> desperately does not want to turn over these T-Mobile phone records. But here's the thing. With these records, it's not even the actual text messages. It's the metadata. So literally all the messages that the January 6th committee could receive through this subpoena lists the phone numbers, uh, the who it's from and who it's to, who's the sender, who's the recipient, when the call took place, and how long the call was. And so she filed the lawsuit in the district court of Arizona at hmm. first. And she said, I'm the chair of the Republican Party in Arizona. I have a First Amendment right to have these private communications and to not have the government intervene because it would chill these political activities that I engage in or chill political membership activities. And so you, Arizona district court, must impose an exacting standard of review that only if there is a compelling need and only if the subpoena is narrowly tailored can this exacting standard be met and the uh, January 6th committee get these records. And the department and, and the court, uh, the district court judge of Arizona said, <clears throat> well, absolutely there is a compelling need for the January 6th committee to get these records, there was an insurrection that took place. Uh -huh. And that is a compelling need for them to investigate the sources of the insurrection, what caused it, your role in it. Also, <laughs> Kelly Ward, you Hi. pled the Fifth Amendment. You took the Fifth Amendment. And in this proceeding, unlike a criminal case, 
by you asserting the Fifth Amendment, it is an adverse inference that you engaged in unlawful conduct or you engaged in misconduct here because when they tried to call you and, and use less intrusive means than subpoenaing your phone records, you refused to testify and you took the Fifth Amendment to mm -hmm. each and every question. So she appealed the ruling by the district court where she lost and she appealed it first mm -hmm. to the Ninth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals. Uh, there was a uh, Trump appointee on there, a George W. Bush appointee on there, and a Clinton appointee on there. And in a 2-1 decision, they denied Kelly Ward's uh, relief that she was seeking uh, to block turning over her records. And they went through that analysis I went through. I mean, first they said, the exacting First Amendment scrutiny standard here uh, doesn't apply because we're not talking about anything that would chill political speech. We're talking about the January 6th insurrection. This is not like the January 6th committee subpoenaed like membership roles of the Republican Party. These are It's a narrowly tailored subpoena about people who you spoke with relating to the insurrection. And so it shouldn't be this exacting standard. But even if you applied a strict scrutiny, exacting scrutiny standard uh, under a First Amendment analysis, there's clearly a compelling interest here for you to turn over these records. And the subpoena is narrowly tailored. Um, in response to losing with the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, um, uh, uh, Kelly Ward filed a motion uh, with the Supreme Court, and in her motion to the Supreme Court, we have it pulled up right there, she asked for an emergency application Stay. of the Supreme Court to block her having to turn over <laughs> uh, these records. Um, yeah, and we've, we've had these fuck, conversations bitch. before here on Legal AF and on the Midas Touch Network go get fuck. that the different Supreme Court justices are assigned to supervise various circuit courts. So each Supreme Court justice is a supervising judge as well of a circuit court who hears emergency applications. And emergency applications should be so rarely, rarely given. And it's different than the normal process in which the Supreme Court hears cases. And the way the Supreme Court normally gets a case in front of it is it has a final judgment and after the final judgment is appealed to the, the higher court, the Court of Appeals, a certiorari petition, a petition certiorari. for certiorari or cert, is filed with the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court can accept or deny certiorari in that specific case. And they like deny it in like 97% of the cases. It is so rare that the Supreme Court take a case. That's how cases are normally heard. And then they're heard in the specific term of the Supreme Court, and there's full briefing, there's full oral argument. But there's been this other process that's always been allowed, but it's been utilized more under the Roberts Court than it ever has before, and that's why it's often referred to as the shadow docket, where there are these emergency applications 
that are filed to specific circuit court, uh, to the specific Supreme Court justice who is assigned to a circuit court. And only rarely should these emergency applications ever be granted, but more frequently, the Supreme Court justices have been granting emergency There's applications, so which has been there. referred to as the shadow docket, which actually in many cases like has a substantive effect and has like a real corruption. outcome is outcome determinative, which really shouldn't be the case of what is taking place. And so as you hear it live, we got the two dogs in the background, <laughs> Taquito and Chaquito, just wishing everybody uh, hello. And so in addition uh, to the shadow docket, um, the cases are normally supposed to be heard through the certiorari process. In this specific instance, the case was heard, uh, was filed through this emergency application process. And the Supreme Court Justice, who oversees the Ninth Circuit, uh, is Justice Southern Elena California. Kagan. And so, for example, with mm -hmm. the what 11th Circuit Court is of Appeal, is there... the Justice okay. who oversees that is Clarence Thomas. And so that's why Clarence Thomas was the one right. who heard the Mar-a-Lago search warrant case after Trump lost in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. He filed an emergency application to Clarence Thomas there. And when Lindsey Graham oh. lost in the 11th Circuit and he was compelled to have to testify before the Fulton County uh, Special Grand Jury investigating Hell. the election interference, he had to appeal on an emergency basis to Clarence Thomas, who oversees uh, the 11th Circuit emergency applications. Here we have Justice Elena Kagan, an Obama appointee, um, and she's the one who hears it. Uh, so Thomas's normally we would think, there, well, Justice Elena yeah, Kagan she, would just she, reject uh, this outright, like um, or that she'll definitely of, reject uh, this outright. I mean, here you have uh, a case yeah. where it involves the insurrection. You have Kelly Ward, who was inextricably yeah, right. involved Who's in the insurrection. Wife? You have an Obama appointee. Um, there's no way that she's going to actually help out Kelly Ward here. And so there was a headline today, though, that Justice Elena Kagan temporarily blocked or temporarily stayed the House January 6th committee subpoena for these phone records. But here's the thing. This is only temporary. What happens next is the January 6th committee has been ordered to respond. They are going to respond. And what I believe Justice Elena Kagan is doing here is that she just wants to be fair. She understands hey, that we're dealing with issues of have, significant import. Mm -hmm. We're dealing with issues Not regarding the January 6th insurrection. Um, you had Clarence yeah, Thomas also request full briefing in the Donald Trump Mar-a-Lago yeah. search warrant matter where he ordered the Department of Justice to fully brief the issue in the Lindsey Graham matter. The Fulton County the District Attorney has to fully brief that issue before Clarence Thomas. And so I think Elena Kagan is just looking at that and says, look, we got to go through the motions. I want to hear from the January 6th committee. I don't just want to, you know, reject this emergency application outright. I don't want to be accused of this being like so political that, look, an Obama appointee just rejected it, which it shouldn't be. It should be following the law. And so she's saying, look, 
I'm going to temporarily block the enforcement of the subpoena. We're going to have a very short response date for the January 6th committee respond. And then I'm going to make my ruling. That's all that happened there. And when you think about it, it's actually not too different than what Justice Clarence Thomas did uh, earlier this week with respect to Lindsey Graham. Now, you'll recall that Lindsey Graham is like desperately trying not to testify before this Fulton County a special grand jury that's doing the criminal investigation of 2020 election interference. And Lindsey Graham has invoked the speech and debate clause and says that he was just engaged in legitimate legislative functions and activity. That's why he was calling Brad Raffensperger and telling him to uh, overturn the actual votes in a free fair election. And the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals uh, rejected that argument and said, no, that's not legitimate legislative activity. The Fulton County Grand Jury can question you on three topics. They could question you on whether or not, Lindsey Graham, you exhorted, cajoled, or basically engaged in undue uh, pressure or extortion or criminal conduct trying to tell Brad Raffensperger, the state secretary of state, to overturn the results of the election. Lindsey Graham, your communications with Donald Trump are not subject to any legislative speech and debate clause immunity, and any of the statements you made to the press are not subject to any speech and debate clause immunity. So all of that is fair game. Um, And Lindsey Graham, desperately not wanting to testify before the Fulton County Special Grand Jury, ran to the Supreme Court the same way Kelly Ward did. And what happened there is Clarence Thomas also granted, on a temporary basis, a stay from the Fulton County Grand Jury enforcing that subpoena the same way in the Ninth Circuit that I just talked about with Kelly Ward. There's a stay from enforcing the subpoena for T-Mobile records, but just like there's a stay for the T-Mobile records pending the January 6th committee's response, uh, it's the same thing in the 11th Circuit. It's pending the response of the Fulton County District Attorney, Fawnie Willis, and her response is due October 27th, and so we'll see the response there. Ultimately, once a ruling is made after these issues are fully briefed, then we can, you know, make and draw conclusions. But I wouldn't really worry about either oh, of those yeah. proceedings, you know, the Lindsey Graham one uh, or the Kelly Ward one, based on what the Supreme Court's done yet. Mm. Whoa, we want to see right. what their actual ruling is Whoa. once they take the channels, full briefing. Channels, and my prediction for both is that the subpoenas will be enforced for Kelly Ward and for Lindsey Graham, because that is what the law is. You shouldn't be involved in insurrections and then claim privileges to try to get around it. Now, speaking of privileges and trying to use privileges to not have to testify, Mark Meadows, the former chief of staff and the former criminal cartel of an administration, this Trump administration, he was ordered to testify today by his local state court uh, in the Fulton County Special Grand Jury uh, Proceedings. So he lives right now. I think he lives in Pickens County. I say I think he lives because you all remember that he was also registered to vote Mm -hmm. in uh, like North Carolina in some random trailer during the last 
during the last election, or he was registered in like three states at the same time. But he claims he lives in Pickens County. And, and, and so in a criminal wow. proceeding, when you Man, want to subpoena awesome. somebody from out of state, states have a uniform code for subpoenas out of state. And so it's a two-step process. So the process that gets no, followed here by channels, the Fulton okay. County District Attorney is you go to the judge who's supervising the special grand jury, and that's Judge Robert McBurney. And you go to Judge Robert McBurney and you say, hey, here is hey, the reasons why Mark Meadows is why. a material witness and why a subpoena should issue. You make that showing, Judge Robert McBurney makes the finding and grants permission to issue this subpoena out of state. But a state or an individual can only be compelled to do things oh, from a yeah. court that has jurisdiction over the person. There's got to be personal jurisdiction over the individual. Um, and so that's why step one, if you're trying to subpoena somebody from out of state, you have to get your local judge in, within the state where you want the testimony to sign off on it. But then you got to initiate an action in the other state where the person resides. So here, Fawny Willis then went to South Carolina. She went to Pickens County. In fact, she went within Pickens County to the 13th Judicial Circuit in the Court of Common Pleas. The judge there is a judge by the name of Edward Miller. And she asked Judge Edward Miller, hey, Look, Judge Robert McBurney signed off on this. Can you sign off on it too and compel Mark Meadows, who lives in your state, to have to fly out and testify in our state? And by the way, we'll pay the costs because that's what you have to do if you're going to make someone leave their state. You'll pay for the travel and you'll pay for the flights and lodging. And Mark Meadows resisted this. When Mark Meadows made a number of arguments first. Mark Meadows tried to argue that what was taking place in Georgia, in Fulton County, was not a criminal proceeding. He said that's a civil proceeding, the special grand jury, and that was rejected because the Fulton County Superior Court Judge McBurney has said this is a criminal proceeding. At the end of this, there will be recommendations oh, court TV. You got of court people TV? who should be right. criminally wow, prosecuted. Ultimately, that grand jury party, party, is not a grand jury that has the power to indict. The recommendations uh, then go to ask, an go actual grand ask. jury, but nonetheless, it is a criminal ask. proceeding that is taking place. So that was one of the arguments. So that argument was knocked out. And the other argument that Mark Meadows tried to make was that he should be cloaked with just total executive privilege. That's uh -huh. why I said, uh -huh. leading uh -huh. into this segment, awesome. that he's claiming all of these privileges to try to get around his conduct in the insurrection. And what you'll recall with Mark Meadows is that he was subpoenaed by the January 6th committee in around September of 2021. And around that time, he actually turned over like 2,100 text messages. And it looked like he was cooperating or was going to cooperate. And then his deposition was set for like December 7th or 8th or 9th. I forget the specific day. But a day before his deposition was going to be taken, what did Mark Meadows do? He said, I'm out, executive privilege. I'm not participating in this anymore. It was a real surprise. The January 6th committee is not legitimate. 
and he filed a lawsuit. That lawsuit has been assigned to a federal judge in Washington, D.C., Judge Carl Nichols, and it's Meadows versus Pelosi, um, asking that the judge find that he doesn't have to testify on the basis of executive privilege. And in that case, mm -hmm. the January 6th committee has filed what's called a summary judgment motion. So they filed the motion basically to dismiss Mark Meadows' claims <laughs> of executive privilege, saying, look, you don't get to cloak yourself in executive privilege for the insurrection. That's not a task of the chief of staff to be involved in insurrections. And those are the questions we want to ask him about his involvement in the insurrection. And so he shouldn't be able to say, oh, this is private communications with the uh, with the president, because that's not what it was. This was what took place at the January on January 6th was was Trump's insurrection activity relating to like what uh, the election, his campaign. It had nothing to do with what presidents should ever be involved with. And so that motion for summary judgment in the D.C. District Court. That is now pending. And Judge Carl Nichols, that name might sound familiar to all of you, right? Judge Carl Nichols. Judge Carl Nichols, who is a Trump appointee, but he was the judge who presided over the Bannon case and sentenced Bannon recently. But Judge Carl Nichols is expected to rule on the summary judgment to dismiss Mark Meadows' case any day now. But in any event, the South Carolina State Court was not buying those executive privilege arguments, nor was it really their call to make. I mean, I suppose when Mark Meadows sits in front of the Fulton County Grand Jury and he asks questions, if he wants to assert the executive privilege or make that objection, he could make it. And then ultimately there in Fulton County, you'd have Fawny Willis uh, go and file for contempt or file motions to compel or file motions that... It is an invalid uh, claim for Mark Meadows uh, to make there. Um, but the short of it is Mark Meadows is going to happen. He may try to appeal it, but people always ask, too. They're like, as I see it in the comments, they go, we just going to appeal it to Clarence Thomas or, you know, whatever. But it's our legal system is a bit complex and it may be confusing. But in our system of federalism, we have federal courts and we have state courts. And so when I mention uh, judge Carl Nichols, that is a federal judge. When I mentioned the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals or the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, those are courts of appeals in our federal court system Pretty that nice oversee mother, district courts in the yeah, states. Courts of man. appeals is the next layer. Yeah, and then like you have the United States Supreme Court at the federal level. And they hear questions that involve federal issues or where there's federal jurisdiction. That's separate and a different court system, although occasionally if a federal question arises, it could go to a federal court, but the Court of Common Pleas, 13th Judicial Circuit, that, that is a state court, not a federal court. But in South Carolina, there will be a district court, or perhaps multiple district courts in various states um, in a state like South Carolina. But for example, the case going on right now, uh, the criminal case involving Donald Trump, um, where the, the Trump organization is a defendant, rather, a criminal defendant. That case is taking place in a Manhattan a state court. That's not happening in a federal court. The Proud Boys, uh, uh, or the Oath Keepers trial, rather, or the Proud Boys plea that happened recently, that took place in federal courts in the D.C. 
district court. I know it could get confusing, but here, I suppose if Mark Meadows was going to appeal, he would not be appealing to the United States Supreme Court. He would be appealing through the state court system is what he would be appealing through. But ultimately, what Judge Edward Miller relied on in ruling that he needs to show up is basically comity, not comedy, comity between the states. That here's a judge in Georgia saying that that this witness needs to go there. I'm just going to listen to what the Georgia judge says. The same way, if I say someone should show up here, I want the Georgia judge to listen to me. And so we'll see what happens with Mark Meadows. He's going to have to testify, but I'm sure he's going to try to obstruct, obstruct, obstruct. Everybody get those Q&A questions ready, because I am going to take questions here from you and try to answer it on this live edition of Legal AF. Um, and before talking about the next topic, I do want to tell everybody, though, if you support independent media like this and you want to support uh, shows like this and other shows that we have yeah, on the man. Midas Touch Network, please check us out at patreon.com slash Touch. That's P-H. I'm a producer. Oh. R-E-O-N dot com slash Midas Touch. Patreon dot A-F or dot Midas Can you, are you even the right person to sue? And does the court have jurisdiction? So in that Brown County taxpayers, there is no general taxpayer standing. And so before even getting to the merits, that case was rejected. Now, Nebraska and these other states which filed their case in the Eastern District of Missouri, that's a federal uh, court, they took a different approach. They said as states that they have standing because when you discharge debt, when you cancel student loan debt, they argue that the states could potentially lose uh, income from taxes if they were to tax the discharge debt as income. They make a few other arguments, but their argument is that the states are losing money when student debt is canceled because they'll lose uh, income from state-related taxes. And just the ultimate irony here is that these Republican-led states pretend to be all about, oh, lower taxes, lower taxes, but it's no. They want higher taxes for everybody other than billionaires at the end of the day, and they'll be willing to use arguments that they want to tax people when it comes to actually giving relief to the 99.9% of the rest of us and not <laughs> sure billionaires and millionaires. And again, I just think this overall effort is just so freaking cruel here. You know, uh, you have under the Trump administration, the deficit was increased by like $7.5 trillion with tax cuts that weren't paid for. And none of these Republican states even like raise a peep about it. Um, you got all of these bailouts for billionaires. And here we're talking about targeted relief. Most people who benefit uh, earn less than $75,000 a year. We're talking about uh, canceling debt of like $10,000 and $20,000 for Pell Grants. And here you have the Koch brothers and all the Republican groups. How dare we help real Americans? How dare we help just regular hardworking Americans? But remember, this is not a both sides issue. And that's one of my problems with mainstream media as well, which is these are Republican states and Republican judges who are trying to screw over you. That's just what those are the facts. 
and you have Democratic-led administrations and Democratic-appointed judges who are just trying to recognize that it shouldn't just be billionaires and decamillionaires and millionaires who get all of the relief. And so anyway, um, in the Eastern District of Missouri, Nebraska and these other GOP-led states filed their lawsuits. And it was actually, I believe, a George W. Bush-appointed judge there who rejected it and said, you have no standing. Your claim that you're going to tax, discharge debt as future income, that's hypothetical and speculative. There's no evidence that you're actually doing that. And then these other claims that you're losing money are also speculative or not actually damages from the state. And so these states then filed with the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. Now, who is the judge who oversees emergency applications for the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals? So we have our legal education, right? We know that Clarence Thomas is the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, right? We know Amy Coney Barrett is the 7th, like Alito is the 5th. We know Elena Kagan is the 9th. We've all talked about those today. Kavanaugh is the judge, the justice who will hear emergency applications for the 8th Circuit Court of Appeals. That's not a good sign that Justice Kavanaugh would be the one who would make an emergency application uh, grant or denial after what the 8th Circuit does. It's also not a great sign that there is, of like I think, the 10 judges who sit on the 8th Circuit Court of Appeals. Only one of them is a Democratic appointee. The others are George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, and Trump appointees. So it's like nine to one. And so we're not going to get a sympathetic panel to the Biden administration and Department of Education here. Uh, but these issues have now uh, been fully briefed. And what the Eighth Circuit did is they temporarily blocked the enforcement, or they temporarily blocked uh, Biden's um, student debt cancellation program for, from going into effect. And they temporarily blocked it pending the briefing schedule. And then they could make a more long-term order, potentially either blocking it or denying the relief being requested um, by the states pending the overall appeal. And appeals take a long time. And so if the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeal um, eventually grants the relief of these Republican-led states and grants a long-term stay pending their appeal, and the appeal takes a long time, the student debt cancellation program can be halted for a really long time. Um, my advice is this, though, regardless, because there's going to be a lot of activity taking place by the Department of Justice, um, who filed their own brief, and a lot of activity by the Biden administration. I think close to 25 million people have already applied and given information to the student debt cancellation program. If you haven't, please apply. Make sure you apply. Do not let this scare you away at all. Apply, apply, apply. Um, we'll have to see what the Eighth Circuit does, but we have the Department of Justice. They filed their uh, brief. Uh, the Republican-led states, they filed their briefs and the department of justice argued look this is a pretty simple issue these states don't have standing think about it if you're going to claim that these states have standing here and they're claiming they're losing their taxable um, that they're losing income as a state that they can tax by taxing discharge debt as income 
under that theory, states could claim standing on literally every case. And there wouldn't be any case where a state can't get involved in any law that they don't like and basically completely disrupt and destroy the, uh, the ability of federal law to have effect. That would be the impact of it. And then you have the states that are arguing, look, the, the district courts got it wrong. We're damaged. Look at our states. We're, you know, we're, we're coming from you. We're state attorney generals, and we're telling you our income is going to be affected by this debt, debt cancellation program. And then let's get to the merits. This hero's act should not apply uh, to uh, this debt cancellation. This, the hero's act was something that was passed around 9-11, and it relates to uh, wartime issues, and, and it never was intended to cover the COVID pandemic. That's, I don't agree with that. And the authorization uh, in the HEROES Act seems to be broad and directly cover an incident like this, the same way that um, collection on student loans was suspended also in the Trump administration, invoking powers under the HEROES Act, and uh, also that it's also been uh, done the same under the Biden administration. Collection has stopped of the student loans temporarily. Um, so if you can do that, why can't the Department of Education do very targeted uh, student debt cancellation of $10,000 or $20,000 uh, for Pell Grant? And it's a broader issue for me. I guess some people are all to me. Our government has bailed out billionaires and millionaires over and over again. They've got tax cuts and rarely is really given to people like who make less than $75,000 a year. And here we have an opportunity. And really, because of student loan debt, it's really created this log jam of people to become productive actors in our economy. It affects people's ability to buy homes and to and to engage in a number of other, you know, activities. And so I think that with the student debt relief, people can be free to go out there and to, and to participate more in the economy. And so that's my political view. And I just want to be compassionate. I want to be helpful to people. You know, we shouldn't just have this two-tier system where all of a sudden we just help billionaires and billionaires and they get bailed out. All right. So now I'm going into the question and answers. I'm looking at the YouTube right now. I'm going to just go at random. Whichever questions I get asked, I'm going to do my Let's see. Let's see. Which of the many cases against Trump? is most likely to ultimately bring him down. Man. This is from Todd Zillow. <laughs> I think it is the top secret sensitive compartmental information case. I think there's uh, an imminent, uh, uh, Trump is an imminent danger there, and it's a home run, uh, it's a completely home run uh, case there. Um, you have Trump stealing top secret sensitive compartmented information. You have clear evidence of obstruction. You've got lawyers who have filed false declarations. Um, we're learning what these records are, you know, and the classification status of them don't matter for the crimes, espionage act violations, um, obstruction, concealment, and mutilation. 
um, are what the investigations for. But the timeline of what Trump did in January of 2021, when he stole these records, to him himself cherry picking documents and after being caught with these documents, returning only a cherry picked amount of documents back to the National Archives in January of 2022. And then you have a grand jury subpoena that issues in May. And then Trump has his lawyers and his custodian of records, Evan Corcoran and Christina Bob through false declarations, saying that all of the documents were returned when the documents weren't returned, and all of these statements that Trump is making uh, uh, publicly. And so to me, also from a strategic standpoint uh, and and from a, a prosecutorial standpoint, the jury instructions that would be given in a case like these, in a case like involving the theft of these government records. It's kind of a very basic case, you know, and, 